Open your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we're going to be this morning. So Psalm 16. Uh, There is a, a, a phrase a proverb, if you will, that floats around the church and has floated around the church for some time now that, uh, that is kind of has grown in prominence over the last few years. And it is, what you win them with is what you win them to. And that idea, it sounds complex at first, what you win them with is what you win them to, but the reality is that even people in the secular world buy into that way of thinking. As an example, I worked at Apple when the first iPhone came out, shortly thereafter the first iPhone came out. And there were a lot of people, as you can imagine, lining up to buy this new device that was supposed to revolutionize the world and, and did. Um, but there were a lot of people that, that were lining up to buy it. And from time to time, we would get people coming in asking us whether or not we discounted the phone. Were there any discounts? It's a steep price to pay for a phone. So are there any discounts that you provide, student discounts, things like that? And anytime you would ask any representative from Apple if there were any discounts that they were ever offering, they would always say no. And the reason why they said no to the discounts on the iPhone is because they really believed that the quality of the product should be bought into by the people. So if you discounted it, the, the thinking went, if you discounted the phone, then what you have won people with is not the quality of the product, but is the discount itself. You have won them with the discount, and so what you have won them to is the cheapness of the product, not the quality of the product, because you discounted it. So with that in mind, with that just kind of overarching idea in our minds, David, in our text this morning, is expressing in Psalm 16 his deep and abiding joy in the Lord of his salvation. And I want us to take a deeper look at this. Let's look at Psalm 16, a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read from your word. We recognize that these are your words, divinely inspired through the pen of David. 
We know that they are inerrant and infallible and that they instruct us and train us in righteousness. And so we ask for their interpretation to be made clear to us. That you would speak to our hearts through your spirit this word that you have laid in front of us. That it would instruct us in our days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. I think perhaps on a good day we would all say pretty confidently that we are part of the family of God. I think we would say, we would agree with one another, if we were all here together, we would probably all shake our heads, yes, that we are part of the family of God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in His substitutionary death, His resurrection from the grave on the third day, His ascension into heaven, that He is coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. I think we would all agree on that. And I think we would also all agree that we are destined for eternal life. In fact, we would probably relish in the fact that we are going to enjoy life in the age to come that is going to be unending and is going to be with Christ on the throne. And we are going to reign with Him. I think we would all say that. But I want to ask you a question. Could it be possible for a person to agree with that and to be so immersed in the church culture that he or she goes to church every time the door is open. That he, is, he or she is so immersed in the routine of church and the cultural expectation of going to church that he would nod along in agreement, I am going to be in life eternal with Christ and with the rest of the body here. And yet, not actually be saved. To think, I am going to enjoy eternity and yet miss eternal life altogether. We know that's possible because Matthew 25 lays that out relatively clear where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. And it seems as though many of the goats that he is talking to when he says, you didn't give me water, you didn't give me food, and these kinds of things, are pretty surprised that they would be in the group that they are in. So let me ask the question again. Are you destined for eternal life? Am I? Is eternal life my future? Or is eternal death my future? David here is expressing the attitude of a person who has been one to God himself. So it might do us well in this psalm to ask if eternal life is my future, then does my heart actually align with David here? David is expressing what it means to be included in the family of God. And so it's worth asking, if I'm included in the family of God, or at least if I think I am, is my heart expressing the same things that David is here? Does it align with David in Psalm 16? Well, David gives us five little couplets, little stanzas, if you will, miniature stanzas uh, through this psalm to help us uh, see if we think like David in regards to our own relationship with the Lord. And so if eternal life is in your future, then the first couplet tells us that God is your refuge. Look with me at the first couplet there in verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God... For in you I take refuge. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You're going to see this language quite a bit in the Psalms where the psalmist speaks of God as his refuge. You see this from time to time. I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with it. He is a shelter in the midst of a storm. He's where you run to, a safe place in which you hide. But it's also common in Hebrew poetry for the the author to either restate the thing that he has just said in nearly the exact same words or maybe just a slight change or to actually in the second line go a little bit further to help you understand what he actually means. And so David here is giving us an answer to the question, what does it look like to have the Lord as my refuge? I might use that term, but do I know what it actually means? Well, it means, David says, that it's recognizing that he has no good apart from the Lord. He has absolutely no good apart from the Lord. So for God to be his refuge, there is first a spoiling of the notion of autonomous self-reliance. He's ruining the notion for himself that I am a man, I am responsible for myself, I can pick myself up by my own bootstraps. He's, di- he's disabusing himself of any of that and, and just throwing it out the window, getting rid of autonomous self-reliance altogether. It's not that he has no good, that there is no good thing, and that he should get rid of all things, like some sort of ascetic. It's that he recognizes that all good gifts are directly from the hand of God himself. Everything he has that could be considered good is directly from God himself. In fact, David is lining up here very nicely with James. In James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this is in the New Testament, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James and David, in other words, are on the same page. They're understanding that any good that we have, be it a possession, something that's essential for life, a health care maybe, friends, family, money, food, water, clothing, shelter, any such thing, that could ever be conceived of by you as good is stemming directly from the hand of God. Now this is particularly important coming from a king like David who is on top of the hill, who's no doubt the richest in the land. As you well know, as prosperity increases, there's a natural tendency for the recognition of divine blessing to decrease. In other words, your recognition of God decreases as your wealth and and prosperity goes up. And so it's part of our carnal nature. We start to think of, of all of the things that we have as coming from our own hard work or our own smarts or, as I said, picking yourself up by your bootstraps, our own ingenuity and know how to be the source of all of our material blessing. Our healing coming from doctors and from modern medicine rather than seeing that the positive effects that come from medicine and the positive effects that come from doctors or even the desire for doctors to go into medicine and to help people as being a gift directly from the Lord. That is God's hand at work working through those avenues. 
So first it's saying that, but second, this is David saying to you and to me that you, Lord, Lord, you are my only joy. You are my highest treasure. You are my greatest good. Not only does all the good stem from you and that I have no good apart from you, but that I have no good above you. You are the highest good in my entire life. Think of Asaph saying the same thing in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, when he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David's going to say almost exactly this in verses 5 and 6 of our passage this morning. So out of the gate, David is affirming that God is his refuge. And what does that mean? That all good things come from him and are provided by his shield and protector. And ultimately, there is no good outside his shield and protector or above his shield and protector. So the implication there of God being his refuge is where else would I run? But to God, if I needed anything, why would I run anywhere else but to you? You are my supreme treasure. You have all good things. In other words, David is one with the goodness of God. And he is one to God himself. So if eternal life is your future, then God is your refuge. Second, God's family is your community. God's family is your community. Look at the next couplet in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom all is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David is, is lifting up his eyes from his own, uh, you might say, his own navel as it were, lifting up his eyes and he's surveying the land before him. And by land, I mean people. He's surveying the people in front of him. And at various times throughout the psalm, you have already seen it a number of times, David looks up at the canvas of land in front of him and he sees wicked people surrounding him and he grows despondent and he cries out to the Lord in despair. But now... He surveys the land and he sees both groups of people. First, he sees the saints. He imagines them in their homes, worshiping the Lord together, praying prayers together, worshiping the Lord through song, worshiping the Lord through nightly devotionals, worshiping the Lord together as a family through board games and through driveway basketball, probably not driveway basketball, but you get the idea. He imagines them in their churches. They're serving one another. They're loving one another. They're caring for one another. They're seeking to bring the Lord joy in everything they do. They're enriching the community around them by meeting the needs of the people that are around them, the poor and impoverished, serving them uh, without any desire to bring any attention to themselves. They're serving Him in worship, and they're serving others around them because they serve Him. And that brings him delight. That brings David delight. But then he looks at the other crowd. 
the ones who run after other gods, and he sees their lives filled with sorrow. He swears them off altogether. They're often characterized by child sacrifice. So he says, yeah, I'm not going to take their blood offerings, you know, their, their, their crazy, even animal sacrifice. I'm not going to do any of that because they're, they're to foreign pagan gods. He's even disassociating with them altogether. He's saying, I won't even take their names on my lips. Now, surely we can't be expected to believe that every pagan person who runs after other gods is a bloodthirsty, sorrow-filled person. Just bitter as the day is long and nasty and their life is just an utter ruin and they always walk around sad. They're never happy. Surely we can't be expected to believe that, right? I mean, Psalm 16.4 kind of makes you think that that's the picture of that person. They're just always mad. I know plenty of pagan people that hate God with everything they've got, and they would describe their own lives as pretty good. They would describe their own selves as relatively happy, and they do seem to be happy people. So why does David depict them as sorrow-filled or sorrowful? To understand what David is doing here, you have to think about where he's, what he's just said. His eyes, his heart, his mind have been forever changed by God, his supreme treasure. That is what he's been one to. The, the, he's been one with the goodness of God. He's been one to God authentically himself. He longs to be with him and recognizes him as his supreme treasure. So if that's the case, then once his sight, once his heart, once his mind has been altered, how can he possibly look at worldly people the same way again? He can't look at possessions the same way again. The things of this world, all good things in life, he sees now as coming directly from the hand of the Lord. If that's so then what do the people who don't consider the Lord at all but pursue worldly treasures, what are they in his eyes? They are sorrowful. They're running after other gods and their sorrow is going to multiply because they don't understand that those good gifts, even the steak on their plate at night, came from the hand of God. And so it's never going to bubble up for them in gratification of what the Lord has done for them at all. It's always going to terminate in and of itself. And once that stake is gone, it's gone. It's got to be replaced again. It never gets to gratification or, or joy for the Lord that has provided that for them. For this reason, for a Christian in a New Testament community context, the church family becomes the primary community for the follower of Christ. It's not that you don't have associates or associations with other people, like friends or family members or neighbors that aren't Christians. Of course we do. We interact with them all the time. They fill my family. Of course we do. But our primary community is those within the body of faith. This is hearkening all the way back to Psalm 1. A Christian cannot extract himself from the Christian community, sit in the counsel of the wicked, have them as their best friends and their chief counsel, and yet claim to be a follower of Christ himself. 
How can you claim to love Christ and hate His body? No, in fact, we have to be able to say with David here that the saints in the land, my eyes have been changed. My eyes have been changed forever. I see things completely different. And the people that come and worship the Lord and bow their hearts before Him, they're beautiful. They're fallen. And they're sinful. And they make mistakes and they offend me from time to time. But they're beautiful. Those are the beautiful ones. They're going to be with me in eternity forever. They're the ones in whom is all my delight. David, in other words, is one with the goodness of God's people. The truth of God's people. And so he's one to God himself. So if eternal life is your future, then first, God is your refuge. Second, God's family is your community. And third, God's promises are your inheritance. Look with me at the third couplet in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When God called the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, they were ready to go in and, and take possession of the land, and they kind of they went in on their uh, kind of judgment crusade, as, as it were, uh, purging the land of evil and judging it on behalf of God. And, and they were given a division of land, each tribe given an, a portion of land to have. So Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Gad and the list goes on, all got pieces of land with their respective tribes in which to dwell. And they were in charge of driving out the rest of the enemy, sure, but, but they were given those plots of land. With the exception of Levi. Levi was the priestly tribe. And they did not have a portion of land that was given to them. God tells Aaron explicitly this in Numbers, and then subsequently he tells the Levites this as well. In Numbers 18, 20, he says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. You get that? He says to Aaron, and then he says to the Levites later on in that passage, I am your portion. I am the one. I'm what you get. You don't get land, you get me. Which should be a better trade, is the implication there. So David, here in this psalm, is actually reflecting the attitude of a priest. In verses 5 and 6, he's, at, he's reflecting the attitude of a priest. And he says, the lines, the boundary lines, the border lines, the lines of my territory, they're not on, on land they're wrapped around God Himself. The lines then, these boundary lines, have fallen in pleasant places for me. The Lord is His portion. The Lord is His inheritance. And so like the Levites, His portion isn't the land. It's God and all God has given to Him. All of God's promises to Him are His only inheritance, His only 
portion. And David is saying that the boundary lines that God has drawn for me that basically contain him and his promises, his goodness to me, that's all I get. If that was all I had, if that, I didn't get one other thing, I didn't get one physical possession, but I got the promise of eternity, I got the promise of resurrection, I got the promise of life with him. If my boundary lines fell just around that, that would be way better than oceanfront property. And I've seen the Mediterranean Sea. It's beautiful. In fact, what is it that all people desire but oceanfront property? It's the highest piece of real estate there is. When Caesar built a home, he built it on the ocean. When the leaders built a home, they built it in the highest spot. They built it in a place where they could see as far as they could. And there's no place you could see better than oceanfront property. And David's saying, I don't want any of it. If the Lord is my boundary line, if what he is offering me is in, in, in eternal life and all of his promises are all I get, that's all I want. It's fallen in pleasant places. Certainly, all of these couplets that David writes has applications for us today, sure. But perhaps none so much as this one. We have as much of possessions, as many possessions as we can possibly accumulate. We have as much as you could possibly ever want. And considering the relative poverty of the rest of the world, we are all wealthy. Yet you might not find a more discontented people than what you will find in the United States of America. How's that possible? We aren't content with our jobs. We aren't content with our position in the company, our salary, the size of our house, the size of our yard, our car, our phone, our clothing, our physical features, our spouse maybe, our children, our savings account, the amount we have in retirement, our church, our friends, and the list goes on. We are not satisfied. We are not content. And so what do we do? We change jobs. We upgrade our house. We take on more debt so we can get more expensive things more uh, and nicer things. And with that new salary, we stretch it as thin as we possibly can. As we've changed jobs to get more money, then we stretch that debt as far as we possibly can to the point where we're actually in the same place we were, if not a worse place than we were before we got the new job. The cycle starts over where we're not satisfied any longer. We need to move up. We need to get more money. And, the li- and it goes on and on and on, and it just keeps going. And we say things like, I'm just not happy here. Like it's someone else's responsibility to change our circumstances so that we can become happy. Or we think that me changing my own circumstances, that's what's going to make me happy. So I keep changing jobs, I keep changing cars, I keep changing houses, I keep changing clothes, I keep changing all these various kinds of things, thinking that at some point this is going to make me happy and it's going to satisfy me. That's not what David says here. In fact, it's not what Paul says in Philippians 4 either with that verse that we love to quote so much 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Ironically, he's not talking about the happy life and reaching the highest of the highs. He's talking about being content with being poor. How can I be content with being rich or being poor, wherever God has placed me? How can I just sit there and be content in that spot and just say, yeah, I'm happy, I'm satisfied? How can I possibly do that? Paul's answer, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But we've changed it. For us, it's different. For us, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is the way we reach the stars. How, can you, how do you know you're going to get that job? Well, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How do you know you're going to get that promotion, that new car? How do you know you're going to get that newer, bigger house? How do you know your life tomorrow is going to be better than it was today? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We've changed it to satisfy our own passions and reveal our own heart in, the, in where we're at in life. David here is saying, I don't care about any of that. If all I have is the Lord, that is enough for me. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. I love that statement. I love the way that is phrased. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Every Christian out there should tattoo that on the back of their eyelids so you see it every time you close your eyes. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. David is one with the goodness of God himself. And so he is one to everlasting delight in God himself. He's enough. I'm content. If eternal life is your future, then first, God is your refuge. Second, God's family is your community. Third, God's promises are your inheritance. And fourth, God's word is your counselor. God's word is your counselor. Look with me at the fourth couplet in verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This harkens back to Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Remember where he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then he says, But his delight is in the law. We said back then, the word, the instruction of the Lord. In fact, the psalmist's affinity for the word of God, we might say in the New Testament context, we might say the Bible is a theme that will reverberate through the entire Psalter. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the entire Psalter, is going to be filled with the psalmist's love for the word. So David states it plainly here, and Christians should be able to wholeheartedly agree that God's word, the Bible, provides counsel, it provides correction, admonishment, encouragement, direction, training in righteousness to the follower of Christ because it is the very words of God. David says his heart instructs him in the night. What does that mean? Well, it's not the same thing as David saying, I was laying down in my bed last night and I received a word from the Lord. No, 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 no. 
Remember, first, it's built on his love and desire and satisfaction for the word of God, that he loves the counsel that the Lord brings to him. So this would be like saying, you know, I read that passage, and the more I thought about it, and the more I dwelt on it, the more convicted I was about that sin. That's like what he's saying. His, his correction, his instruction in his heart is because he's taken the word, he's put it and hid it in his heart, and then the word has instructed him through his heart on how he should live and where his conviction should lie. This is an instruction that's in David's heart, and it's an overflow of conviction from his reading and his meditating on the word of God. Brothers and sisters, understand that this has significant meaning for every Christian and every church. There is no Christian that has the right, no one that can call himself a Christian, has the right to govern himself or herself in any other way than in accordance with the Word of God. Further, Christian, you should not be enticed by the counsel of your friends and family members when that counsel is not steeped in the Word of God. Or when they themselves are not steeped in the Word of God. The question in our minds should always be, what does God's Word say about this? When secular counsel lines up with the Word of God, by all means apply it. But it's not because it came from a secular counselor. It means it, it's because it came from the Word of God. They just may not know it. So as an example, there's no married person that could possibly say, I really believe the Lord is leading me to separate from my spouse, to divorce my spouse. No one that could call themselves a Christian could possibly ever say that, that God is leading me to separate from my spouse. To divorce my spouse. Why? Because it says in the Bible, God hates divorce. God's not leading in that direction. Satan also leads us and also speaks to us. And that's more in line with Satan's words than God's. In fact, we, as we give counsel, we should forget words that say things like, God spoke to me as we give counsel to someone. And instead, we should opt for God's Word says this, and then give the counsel from the words of Scripture, lest we confuse anybody that the authority of our counsel rests on our own abilities to intuit in our own hearts the Word of God as if we are some sort of prophet. Instead, we should be led by the words of God Himself. And use that as our counsel. But churches are under the same obligation. Individual Christians, yes, but as the Christians come together in the local assembly of the body of Christ, we're under the same obligation of the Word of God. For one, to preach it from our pulpits. For two, to give all other forms of counsel from it. And three, to govern our lives together by it. 
structure of our church should be built in accordance with the Word of God. We call that church polity. That should be built and structured according to the Word of God, regardless of how your preconceived notions of how churches should or should not operate is regardless of how well or how poorly you have seen churches attempt to govern themselves by the Bible in the past or not, a church has no right to structure itself or run itself by any other standard than the Word of God. The Bible, it turns out, actually has quite a bit to say on how local churches should be governed. And to ignore what it says on this matter is to make us a law in and of ourselves. And there's no way we could ever call ourselves a Christian church. David is one with the goodness of God's Word, with the sweetness of God's Word, with the Bible itself with his very words. He's one with the word of God and he's one to God himself. He says, I have set the Lord ever before me because of his counsel, because of his word. If eternal life is your future, then first, God is your refuge. Second, God's family is your community. Third, God's promises are your inheritance. Fourth, God's word is your counselor. And fifth and finally, God's presence is your joy. Look with me at the final triplet in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Please understand the joy of being in the presence of God is what we as Christians are striving for. The pleasure, the joy of being in God's presence is why we do what we do. That's what we're striving for. We might experience it at times where we can just kind of close everything out and we can just praise the Lord for who He is. We feel as though we're right there singing praises before His throne. But then our whole lives are striving to make that day. We cross the finish line into glory. We stand in the presence of God Himself. Our joy, our strength, David says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our desire is to experience the pleasures, the joy that come with being in the presence of God. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. God made you, in other words, to be happy. But here's the catch. Happiness will only be fulfilled by being in his presence. That's it. That's the only way. That is why David is trusting in what he does not yet know. That God will not abandon his soul to death. Won't let his Holy One see decay. David trusts that God is going to restore him to life after death. And that David will somehow be ushered into the presence of God. A sinful man like me. Though I die, I know you will not abandon me in death and that I will be in your presence 
These verses may sound familiar to you because they're twice cited in the New Testament. Once by Peter, once by Paul, and they're about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, they explicitly say, Peter, that that's what David was talking about. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Peter says in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2, he quotes this passage and then he explains it this way in 29 to 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is Jesus. God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. So in other words, David's trust here in God, that he's not going to let his Holy One see corruption, is really about Jesus. It's ultimately that he's not going to abandon him in the grave because this is ultimately going to be fulfilled by one of his heirs that he already knows about. This Jesus being raised from the dead. And so it was through Jesus' resurrection from the dead that all of the people of God receive life after death, that their souls are not abandoned in Sheol. So while you, as a New Testament Christian, are saved by looking back at Jesus, what he has done, his his substitutionary death uh, on the cross, his resurrection, Old Testament saints are saved by looking forward to and trusting in the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. Both of which, New Testament Christians and Old Testament saints, are both trusting in the promises of God to be fulfilled. One's looking back and one's looking forward, but both are trusting in having faith in the promises of God, and it turns out that's what actually saves David. Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham and such like him were counted as righteousness. How? Not by works of the law, but by faith in God. And so, when an Old Testament saint died, God forestalled his judgment on sin until the price of the sins of God's saints had been paid for on the cross of Christ. So David speaks forward to a day that he would not physically see with his own eyes when God would release from the bondage of corruption all the saints of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we could alter slightly what I've said, if eternal life is yours, and add right in there, then Jesus is your Lord by faith in His death and resurrection. And then all the rest is true. If eternal life is yours, then first there is a trust in the resurrection and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way any of these things are true. Because I want you to see something crucial about this passage. Really two things. The things that David is saying here in this psalm are a result of faith, not a precondition. Eternal life is your future, not because you have made every effort to make God your refuge. Not because God's family is your community. Well, I come to church. That's what I do. They're they're my community. They're my group of people. 
God's promises are your inheritance, not because you have, you have set that securely in your mind. You're not, you're not securing eternal life because you thought, well, I, I, you know, I like the idea of eternal life. I like God's promises being my inheritance. Yeah. I read the Bible, therefore I'm a Christian. Don't hear me saying, hey, Christian, here's what you need to go to eternal life, to have eternal life, to make eternal life your future. You need to go home and you need to be better. You need to try harder to do this so that you can make it to heaven. No. I'm saying that if you are saved, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then all these things are true of you and growing truer over time. Because I want you to see something else too, pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. Listen to the words that David uses throughout this psalm. God being your refuge, or, or what I said, he, he, he is good to you, David says. God's family is a delight. He says in verse 3, God's promises are pleasant places. In verse 6, Praising the Lord because of His instruction that He gives to my heart in verse 7. And then the gladness, the rejoicing, life, fullness of joy, pleasures, He says in verses 9 to 11. All of those terms that He uses are about His affections for the Lord. They're all about His, his affections the way he truly, deep down in his heart, authentically feels about God, what he has really been one to and been one with. His entire heart has changed. David is one authentically to the God of the universe. He is one with the promises of God. In the New Testament context, this can only be done by the Holy Spirit actually reforming the heart of a sinner with the promise of a restored relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only way it happens. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. It's by the gospel. The offer of a restored relationship with Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart of a sinner opens up his heart that he may believe, changes his entire outlook on life, turns his heart upside down, gives him all new desires. At that moment, he has all new desires and then becomes true and growing truer what David has laid out in this psalm. It's only true for believers. It's only true if the Holy Spirit has given that affection change to your heart because you, believe it or not, cannot whip up a joy and a love for something that you hate. We are born hating God. There is no way we can whip up a love for Him in our hearts without the Holy Spirit's divine intervention. That happens first. Then all these things are true and growing truer. David is one with the promises of everlasting joy, and he is one to God himself. Because only at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, we should not 
And with God's help, we will not settle for cheap expressions of happiness that aren't rooted in genuineness of faith. Now, I can say that. I can tell you that an entertainment-driven church that's built on fun and games, winning people with a carnival atmosphere, is not what we should ever, and with God's help, will ever become. And most people, when you hear me say that, and you think about the worship service in here, probably would agree with me. All of you would. Yeah. We don't want this place in here, this, our worship together to become this carnival-type atmosphere. We don't want that. Probably all of you would agree with me. In fact, we don't think that deep abiding and God-delighting in Christians are produced by entertainment. We all agree with that. But somehow it changes when we get to the children's building or when we get to the youth ministry. Somehow, all of a sudden, the way we win people, what we win them with, needs to change. It's got to be something other than the gospel. It needs to be something other than the body of Christ. It needs to be something other than the word, the counsel of God. It needs to be something other than God himself. It's got to be something other than that. But listen, we do not think... In fact, the Bible tells us that deep abiding, God-delighting Christians are not produced by entertainment as if they can be one with entertainment and then all of a sudden be changed and be one to a God who tells them to come and die. That, my friends, is called a bait and switch. And I'm afraid that's what the American church has been offering teenagers and children for a long time. And we wonder why they grow up and they leave the church. Because they weren't given the gospel. They weren't given the word of God. They weren't given worship of God. They weren't given the body of Christ. They weren't given the authentic counsel of the Bible. They were given a package of entertainment and they were told, this is what your life as a Christian will look like. Oh, by the way, there is a come and die clause in there. Are you willing to buy into that? And they're saying to you, What we are is very simple. We are a body that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel. That's what we do. That's everything that we do. What we do is very simple. We believe the Bible and we teach and preach it to our people and we serve the community around it because we believe the Bible. How we draw people into this place is very simple. We go out individually, we serve them in the name of Christ, we share the gospel audibly with them and through our actions, we teach, we sing, we read, we preach the Bible so that what they find there is what they find here on the inside. It's not a bait and switch. I believe firmly that when the Bible is taught those whose joy is firmly rooted in Christ will be drawn like a moth to the flame. Because as David says, it is the root of satisfaction in Christ or in God Himself that results in a love for His counsel. 
that results in a love for the word that he gives me. It results in a deep desire to love his people that are around me. It results in a deep desire to worship him with all of them. Winning them with the promise of a restored relationship to Jesus Christ, uh, to God through Jesus Christ alone, and winning them to the Lord of all creation so that what we create in here is a body of people every Sunday morning that are gathered in this room that are willing together to raise the cup of blessing with one voice and say, we have been bought by God through Christ. We have been bought by the the Spirit through Christ. And by the Spirit, He will deliver us to eternal life The Lord is our portion and our cup. He holds our lot, and for us, the lines have indeed fallen in pleasant places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to come into our hearts. wake us up. We ask, Lord, that you give us life. We ask that through your Spirit you testify to us that we belong in your family and that for us that would be enough. Change us, Lord. Enlarge our appetites for your word. Enlarge our appetites for worship of you. May what comes out of our hands and feet and mouth be love and mercy and grace to other people. Because of what is bubbling up in our heart, a deep and abiding love and desire for you. Enjoying forever the fact that you reside in us through your spirit. I pray that we would not be satisfied giving to anyone else out there anything other than the pure, unfiltered, unadulterated gospel that we are sinners. You have sent your Son in mercy and grace and also justice to die a death we deserve, to give us life we do not. May that be the theme of our song, the joy of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.